0: This episode of the Economic Arise podcast was made possible with the help of Studio. We all love listening to podcasts, right? Well, as podcast fans, I'm sure you guys will understand how important your earphones are to the whole listening experience and how difficult it can be to find the right pair. Some might be too bulky, sometimes the cables are too long and always get tangled up, while some of the wireless options have a lousy battery life and barely last throughout the day. Thankfully, the folks over at Studio have come up with a wonderful solution. If you're not familiar, Studio is a Swedish audio accessories brand that aims to deliver excellence in design and sound quality, which is evident in their latest product, the Studio 12. These are a pair of fully wireless earphones that both sound good and look great, and boy does it pack a punch in the sustainability department. We're talking 35 full hours of battery life on these things, with 7 hours per charge and an extra 4 charges in the carrying case. We're talking brand new graphene drivers that offer top notch audio quality and Bluetooth 5.0 with a wireless range of up to 15 meters. And you know what? If you have never tried fully wireless earphones before, you might be a little hesitant. I get that, I was pretty much the same way. I mean, who wants to keep losing expensive earphones, right? But having tried the Toll for about a week, I can safely say that my doubts were overstated. The pieces may be small, but they are designed to fit snugly in your ear, such that it never feels like it's going to pop out that easily. And yes, while having wireless earphones takes some getting used to, the convenience and ease of use of these things more than make up for it. I mean, straight out of the box, all you gotta do is pair it once with your phone, and each time you want to use it, just take it out of the charging case and it connects automatically. Boom. Easy. All right, so if you're interested in getting yourself a pair, you can head over to Studio's website at studio.com/sg/earphones to check them out. That's studio s u d i o. Studio offers free shipping on every purchase and currently they have a summer promotion where they will throw in a free Studio summer tote bag with each earphone purchase from the 1st of May to the 31st of July. Oh, and do you know what's the best part? Promo codes. Yes, the Economical Rice Podcast has its own promo code. Enter Economical Rice Podcast at checkout for 15% off. That's Economical Rice Podcast, no spaces for 15% off. Holy cow, you have no idea how long I've been waiting to say that. The Economical Rice Podcast will now return to its regular scheduled programming. Details about the studio tour will be linked in the description. Check it out. I'm sitting somewhere in the middle of a giant room. The ceiling is high, the air is warm and humid, and right in front of me is an elevated wooden stage with a clock hung so impossibly high above it, ticking and ticking. All around me people are hunched over their desks, scribbling, scratching, thinking. They are dressed in much the same manner, short sleeve button-up shirts with long pants for the boys and skirts for the girls all drenched in this faded shade of pale green. And as I continue to scan around the room, my attention is caught by a figure staring right back at me. She is tall and slim, with wiry glasses and medium length hair, and she is different from the others, older, not dressed like the rest, but clearly more formal and more authoritative. She begins to raise her arms ever so slightly and makes a gesture at her watch in the smooth, rhythmic fashion. Ticking and ticking. That's when it came into focus. In front of me was this square grey plastic table with a set of freshly printed papers right in the middle. The cover page was bare but for a few lines, and upon reading the block letters, GCSE A-Level H2 Chemistry, it all began to unravel. It started from the brain, from the stark realization of the enormity and the impossibility of the task set before me. I wasted too much time playing video games, spent too many nights drinking and having fun, squandered all those opportunities to ask questions and meet my teachers. When you finally come face to face with the moment that you've been dreading, the one that you've been trying to escape from all this time, The feeling reaches this intense fever pitch. At that moment I was so overwhelmed with all these thoughts of worry and stress and guilt that I began shivering, sweating, tapping my feet, clicking my pen. And just when I thought that it couldn't get any worse, that this insane stress-ridden tornado of emotions couldn't get any bigger, I took a chance and stole a glance at the clock ticking, and ticking. You have five minutes remaining, and then it all stopped. The sweating, the shivering, the feet tapping, there was nothing I could do now. Half the paper was blank and the other half was riddled with mad scribbles and anxious guesswork. Even the most optimistic person would have given up then, would have watched as hopelessness turned into resignation or rather, as the hopelessness itself began to manifest. There goes the future. No entry into the dream course at university. No chance of getting that dream job with the dream salary. No dream house with the dream family and the dream pets. All of it was gone, washed away forever in the course of a three-hour examination. And if I had to be completely honest, in that moment of profound knowing, All I could feel was this numb emptiness, both familiar and foreign at the same time. It was pointless to cry over something I never had, or fear over any further disappointment than what I had already caused. It was just never meant to be. I strayed too far from the path and now I had to bear the consequences. The system, after all, doesn't reward detractors. Never could and it never would. I was never cut out anyway, never quite fit the mold. And the sooner I swallowed this realization, this bare statement of failure, the better. No more worry, no more guilt, no more anxiety. Peace at last. In fact, if you close your eyes and listen hard enough, you could almost make it out. You hear that? This constant ringing, and ringing, and ringing, and ringing, and... Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Hey listeners. As you can tell from the intro and the ad read, yes I am finally sponsored, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Not so much of the weaving voices and narrative kind of style, but more of a reflective essay of sorts. And the topic is something that's been on the back of my mind ever since I started working two years ago. Meaning, purpose, and the ever so venerable idea of the Singapore dream. If my audience analytics is correct, and most of you listening out there are in the 18 to 35 age range, and hopefully these issues will resonate with you as much as it has with me. I mean, I'm not proclaiming to be an expert or some life guru or anything, but who knows? Maybe you guys can find some solace or comfort in what I have to say. All right. I want to start by talking about a film called On Happiness Road, or Xing Fu sang It's a Taiwanese animated movie released in 2017, and the directorial debut of Sung Sin Yin. It's won several awards, including Best Animated Feature at the Golden Horse Film Festival and Grand Prize at the Tokyo Anime Awards, and in my own humble opinion, I really, really do think that it is one of the best and most underrated films out there. So what is this movie about? Well, strictly speaking, it's a homecoming story. One in which the protagonist, Lin Shuqi, receives news of her grandmother's passing, and returns to the street where she grew up, Happiness Road. As Lin returns home, we get to see the various points and characters of influence throughout her life, from her dad saving her from a stray dog, to the protests that she participates in as a part of Taiwan's budding fight for freedom and democracy and it is from these flashbacks that we learn of how Lin had come to view America as his beacon or ideal, a place where she could flourish and be the best person that she could be. Of course, as is the case with most fantasies and daydreams, reality often tends to disappoint, and what we see with Lin's present situation after having moved to America is that it didn't really turn out as she had hoped it would. Her room is in a mess, her life is in disarray, and during the film, she even contemplates a divorce of her quote, knight in shining armor, Caucasian husband Tony. This, in my opinion, is what makes this movie so special. Because unlike your typical Hollywood movie where the hero ventures on their quest and triumphs over all of their obstacles, On Happiness Road takes a much more nuanced approach to telling their story. There is no clear resolution at all, no happily ever after. In fact, for most of the scenes in the flashbacks, What we get to see are these painful moments where Lin has to confront and dispel her own childhood fantasies. By the time we get to the end of the film, Lin is so distraught that she is torn between staying in Taiwan and returning to her life in the States. When she utters the lines, but dad, what will I do if I come back, I'm not good at anything, it is just absolutely devastating. I mean, that's how the movie ends, with a full-blown existential crisis. No sugarcoating, no false hopes, no valiant last-minute redemptions. And as a part of the audience, you get to witness this complete and utter breakdown in all its painful, agonizing glory. So yeah, this movie is bleak, to say the least. So much so that director Sung Sin Yin even said that quote, it is essentially a cruel and dark coming-of-age story. However, be that as it may, I hope you can at least appreciate the movie for what it does best, being authentic. I mean, that is why all these scenes are so painful, right? Because they are so relatable, so unflinchingly believable in trying to present a true account of what it's like to grow up and chase your dream. And yes, while the movie is dense and covers a whole gamut of different talking points from culture to politics to language to economics, at its core, it's a story that resonates so well precisely because of its authenticity. As Sung notes in an interview with Cinema Escapist, I only wanted to faithfully reflect my experience growing up in Taiwan. Anyone who wants to make a movie should first think of a good story, and then think of how history or real events have an influence. If you think of a topic first and then build a story on top, then your movie will end up boring and heartless. Now, as much as I would like to, we're not here to just talk about films. So what was the whole point of bringing up On Happiness Road? And what has this got to do with meaning, purpose, the Singapore dream, or even economics? Well, it's a jumping off point. Because at least with regards to meaning and purpose, who hasn't had dreams and ambitions in their life? Or in some cases, to want them so badly and to pursue them so relentlessly that it consumes their entire being. That was the case with Lin Shuchi and Going to America. But where the film becomes even more poignant is with the harsh trade-offs that these dreams come with. Because regardless of intent, every choice you make comes with a cost. If I take a year off, I'm jeopardizing my career prospects. If I switch careers, I have to start from the bottom all over again. If I move abroad, who will support my parents when I'm not there? And when you consider all these consequences, I think it can be tempting to lean towards the pragmatic route, to favor safety and stability in your working life. I remember when I was a teenager and I just picked up the guitar, I had desperately wanted to be a singer-songwriter and travel the world playing to sold-out shows. In hindsight, I am grateful that I chose the safe route and went with finance and accounting instead, not least of all because my relatives kept telling me how bad of a choice that would actually be. But from a larger point of view, pragmatism isn't just reactionary. For Singaporeans at least, it's more of a cultural character, molded through economic circumstance and passed down from generation to generation. I mean, if your forefathers immigrated to Singapore and had to struggle and save to survive through all those difficult early years, chances are that those traits become habit and over time eventually form part of the local culture. This can take the form of many things, but one of the most common ways in which it is presented is through the idea of the Singapore dream.
1: The present generation below 35 has grown up used to high economic growth year after year. And they take security and success for granted. And because they believe that all is well, they are less willing to make sacrifices for the benefit of the others in society. And they are more concerned about their individual and family's welfare and success, not the communities or the society's well-being but this is very dangerous because things can go terribly wrong, terribly quickly. These people are simply not aware of Singapore's vulnerabilities. All they read about is that Singapore is either number one or number two as the most competitive country. And from time to time, they complain that we are driving the people too hard, making life too stressful. So why not settle for number three or number four or number five? Does it matter? My answer is, yes, it does matter. For if we are not near the top in competitiveness, why should there be a separate, independent Singapore in existence at all? And that is the awful, simple truth.
0: Study hard, do well in PSLE, O-levels, A-levels. Get a good degree, apply for a job as a lawyer, doctor, or engineer. Sign up for a BTO, marry a partner and have two kids, or three, or four. Get your five C's and retire when you're 65, 67, 70. That is the Singapore dream. That is the default marker of success here in Singapore. A society so pragmatic that even our dreams serve a functional purpose. They tell us where we're supposed to go, they imbibe us with purpose and a sense of direction, they incorporate us into the general consciousness, all working hard and diligently towards one singular dream. For a while now, I've wondered why people buy into this idea. What is it that tugs at them and guides their life choices? Is it purely out of patriotism? Or perhaps out of reverence and respect for our founding fathers? My own hunch is that people find these ideas comforting and secure. They can alleviate their own existential worries by taking shelter in the existential drive of the nation. Because finding meaning and purpose in what we do can be difficult. No one likes to spend 8 hours a day in and out of classrooms or working in a cubicle, but if there is something to do it for, then it becomes more palatable. It's easier, more convenient, more practical. And so we cruise along, never having to worry about the choices we make or the path we were choosing because we already believed that the Singapore dream was the best out there. Sure, you could have your separate interests and hobbies, but in terms of career choice, deviancy just equated to struggle. And clearly, no one wanted that. Back in the year 2000, filmmakers Colin Goh and Joyce Lin Woo penned a seminal essay titled Paved With Good Intentions. In it, Colin had this to say about the Singapore Dream. I had studied law largely because it was often cited as the next best thing after medicine, which I knew I'd be awful at. Besides, S.M. Lee was a lawyer, what better endorsement could a Singaporean have? Despite being a published cartoonist and writer by then, I never thought about a career in the arts. It was a completely non-existent option. What was worse was that my parents never forced me into law. I just read their minds, I guess. Besides, all my friends seem to be doing it too. It was the Singaporean dream. Ten years later, journalist Grace Chua replies to her own views in her piece titled, Whose Dream Is It Anyway? Could it be that we have no dreams of our own, or that we feel we need to seek permission to have new ones? Could that be why Generation Y is feeling the state of restlessness our parents felt only as they approached their 40s? What precipitates so many of our quarter-life crises is this. Young people are trying to figure out if we're doing what we really want, or what others think we should do. And skipping ahead nine years, as I sit here writing about a topic I never thought I have to worry about, as I struggle to find reasons to wake up in the morning and pull myself through the day, I find myself questioning the foundations of my own deep-seated beliefs. And the thing that keeps coming back again and again and again, it's a simple question, is it really worth it? Why do we follow so diligently a path that we never set? Why do we accept what is given and never question otherwise? Is safety safety and stability really that important? Is it worth putting yourself through hours upon hours of mind-numbing work, toiling away at some job that you have no interest for? The pressure, the stress, the long nights, is it worth it then? Or is it just convenient? When I started working full-time, I used to look down at the deviants. The artists, the musicians, the dreamers. They were selfish and impractical, dumb even, to have chosen a path of struggle instead of working hard towards a more stable career. In fact, I used
2: to admire the Stoics, those who hunkered down and worked tirelessly for some other end, be it their family, their company, or even their country. They didn't care for their own passions. They knew what was demanded of them and they performed their tasks admirably. They studied, they chased qualifications, they worked and worked and worked. They were brave, selfless, heroic.
0: Nowadays, I'm beginning to have doubts. After listening to many harrowing tales of crying in the workplace, getting berated constantly, or working ungodly amounts of hours, the cracks are beginning to show. And if I've learned anything at all from all this time chasing the Singaporean dream, it's that safety and stability comes at a price. For the promise of a stable, middle-class Singaporean life, you lose some sanity, some sleep, some health. But worst of all, in my opinion, is that you lose yourself,
2: you become just like the rest, all taking the same qualifications, all chasing the same jobs, all aspiring towards the same Singapore dreams, even talk the same, on and on about university applications, credit card rebates, and BTOs. You are no longer an individual, unique in yourself and your hopes and dreams and your desires and passions, but you have succumbed to becoming a rat in the rat race with all the other countless rats out there. And the thought that I am slowly
0: descending down that path terrifies me. It it truly does. The idea that you can go on and on for 30 to 40 years of your working life, living as an imposter, all for the sake of safety and
2: stability, really, is that all there is? Is that the legacy that you want to leave behind? I played it safe, I followed the rules, I made no mistakes, and come on, who are you trying to fool? And, you know, I get that safety is important. I get that some people don't like risk, and they just want to cruise along and not have to suffer unnecessarily. I get that. I really do. Change is scary. Taking risk is scary. Uncertainty is scary. But at some point, you have to draw the line. Because if you let your fear dictate your whole life, your safety net is going to end up becoming your ceiling. And before you know it, your whole life will go by and you will have missed it completely. 80 years old, barely able to move, and full of regret. I mean, think about it. How many times have you put away that personal project or excuse yourself from something that interests you because you thought it would be silly or that no one would approve of it? Or that others will find it a waste of time? How many times have you put up with that crappy job that just powers more work and more stress on you? Is taking a stand really that scary? Leaving your job, trying new things, working towards your dreams, being different for once?
0: These are the questions that I've been drowning myself in. It's like a voice in the back of my mind that's finally speaking up after years and years of being repressed. And with each passing miserable day at the office, it just gets louder and louder and louder. Safety and stability are important, for sure. But comfort breeds complacency. And comfort will not push you to try harder or care enough to make a difference. And if you're fine with that, and by all means, live that life. But if you feel like there is another purpose out there for you, realize that that path is yours to take. As for myself, I am now at the great existential fork in the road. And I think I have made my decision. And for those of you out there in the same boat as me, I hope you can make yours too. And with that brings the end to today's episode. I know that this hasn't been the most conventional episode so far, but I feel like I really needed to speak, uh, get these things off my chest and think I'm better off for having done so. Yeah, so thank you for tuning in. All the links to the music and research used in this episode can be found on the show notes on the website. And, uh, And if you want to check out the Studio 12 as well. You can find the details at www.economicalrisepodcast.com. This has been your host Danny at the Economical Rise Podcast, where over here, we make life-affirming decisions to find our own meaning and purpose. Thank you for listening.